2: Our topic today is shining a light on patient safety. Early in 2015, across North America, we're seeing increasing focus on patient safety, which is revealing worrying trends in medical errors. One important source of information is the stories written by investigative journalists, which are published in newspapers of all political stripes. One example is Canada's National Post, which, for investigative journalism, is a Canadian parallel with the New York Times. On January 22, 2015, the National Post published a story, Transparency About Medical Errors, a magic bullet that could help make healthcare safer. It was authored by investigatory journalist Tom Blackwell. Now, what Tom Blackwell was reporting on is or was the U.S. National Patient Safety Foundation's Lucian Leap Institute's new report, Shining a Light, Safer Healthcare Through Transparency, which is why our topic, Shining a Light on Patient Safety, is so important for family caregivers and their family members. Now, to discuss it, our guest is Dr. Tejal Gandhi. Tejal is president of the U.S. National Patient Safety Foundation and the Lucian Leap Institute. She received her MD from the Harvard Medical School and her MPH, that's Master's of Public Health, from the Harvard School of Public Health. And She trained at Duke University Medical Center She's a board certified internist and associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Her career includes executive director of quality and safety at Brigham and Women's Hospital, chief quality and safety officer at Partners Healthcare and serving on the Joint Commission Medication Safety Expert Panel, the National Quality Foundation's Clinical Decision Support Expert Panel, and the ONC's Health IT Policy Committee's Safety Task Force. In 2009, she received the John M. Eisenberg Patient Safety and Quality Award for her contributions to epidemiology and possible prevention strategies for medical errors in outpatient care. And in 2014, she was included in modern healthcare's 100 Most Influential People in Healthcare. So, welcome to the show, Tijon. Thanks so much for having me. Great. First question for you, please. Please tell us about transparency and what you mean by it and its importance for patient safety. Tijel?
3: Sure. So at the National Patient Safety Foundation's Lucian Leap Institute, uh, we came up with what we call transforming concepts, what we think are needed to transform healthcare in order to optimize patient safety. And some of those concepts related to things like improving medical education, improving safety of the workforce, but one of the transforming concepts was around transparency and the fact that we think transparency is really a precondition to patient safety. And when we talk about transparency, we talk about it in several levels that I'm sure we'll get into, and so it's not just transparency with the patients. so that's clearly incredibly important. But it's also transparency and shared learning across the entire healthcare system at several levels as well. And so we think all of this transparency needs to happen in order to achieve the safest healthcare.
2: We are indeed going to be talking in greater detail uh, about those things, but here's my next question. Please tell us about the work of the National Patient Safety Foundation. What do you do?
3: Sure. The National Patient Safety Foundation has been in place since 1997, and our vision is to create a world where patients and those who care for them are free from harm. And it's really uh, the only organization that has had a singular focus on patient safety, particularly for such a long duration of time. As you'll notice, 1997 was actually before the kind of uh, uh, sentinel report to Eras Human that really brought attention to the issue of patient safety. And so some of the activities that we do are to partner with key stakeholders across healthcare to identify best practices in patient safety and disseminate them, and in particular uh, through our think tank, the Lucian Leap Institute, which you already mentioned. And we also do quite a few activities targeted at healthcare providers to really try to educate and train healthcare providers about patient safety and how to uh, develop skills in patient safety through curriculum, through certification, and even through an annual meeting. So we have quite a few educational activities. And then finally, we do quite a bit of awareness raising for the public. We sponsor Patient Safety Awareness Week, which is a week that occurs every year to really draw attention to the issue of patient safety. And then we have several other activities that we gear towards improving patients' ability to ask questions to their providers and really partner with
2: their healthcare providers. Please tell us, Uh, more about the work of the Lucien Leap Institute and what it does and how it relates to the uh, National Patient Safety Foundation. So
3: um, the Lucien Leap Institute is a program within the National Patient Safety Foundation. It was founded in 2007 and it really is a think tank with membership that are the leading thinkers in patient safety and include Lucian Leap, who's considered the my grandfather of patient safety, who helped create the patient safety movement. And the intent of this group is to really provide strategic thinking in terms of where we need to go in safety, not just for the National Patient Safety Foundation, but really for healthcare as a whole. And so, the products of the Institute over the last several years have really been reports and and white papers targeting key areas uh, of focus that, the Institute members feel are critical for patient safety. And so um, the first report that came out was on reforming medical education and how we need to include more quality and safety training in medical education. The second report was on care integration and how critical it is for healthcare information and care to seamlessly flow across various settings in healthcare. The third report was on workforce safety which uh, has kind of been a neglected area, and the concept here is that if you don't have a safe workforce, there's no way you will be able to deliver safe care to patients, Uh, and we know healthcare has incredibly high rates of worker injury, and so that was the focus of this report to really uh, be a call to action to say we need to focus on the workforce. The fourth report was about patient engagement and the fact that we need to partner with patients at all levels of care at the sharp end in terms of just uh, things like uh, shared decision-making and making sure that patients are told about errors, but also at other levels. So hospitals, for example, need to include patients on quality committees or on boards and so on. So the way, so it talks about the various ways that patients need to be uh, involved and partnered in healthcare with the healthcare system. And then the last report that we've done is the transparency report that we we're talking about. And again, it talks about the criticality of transparency to create a, uh, a system that, that delivers
2: the safest care. Now, I, just, I started this introduction by talking about worrying trends. Do you agree with me or do you think I'm overstating the problem when I say something like that? Tejal?
3: Well, I think patient safety is clearly an issue that is concerning, and we don't have very good data to say whether, for example, we are safer now than we were 15 years ago. Many of the experts in the field think that we are safer and we're headed in the right direction, but we don't have great data to support that. It's much more based on just personal experience or anecdote, those sorts of things, so um you know, So what I find worrisome is that we actually don't even have great measurement around what the rates of harm are, um, and that although I think we've made progress, we're probably not making progress as rapidly as we would like, and we're starting to see less research in patient safety, less funding for research in patient safety, so... That to me is worrisome, but I also think that there's some really positive things that have happened over the last 15 years. We're talking about patient safety. We're talking about cultures where people are open and willing to talk about errors, and we're talking about uh, better engaging patients, and we're seeing reductions in things like infections and readmissions. So, so I think there has been progress, but we just clearly have a long way to go.
2: And what that means then is that both the Foundation that's the National Patient Safety Foundation and the Lucian Leap Institute, and I know that they're kind of brothers and sisters in this work um, that's really pointing to the what you've just been saying is pointing to the future of the need for more closer investigation, more detailed research and that kind of thing. Is that right? Is that how you see the future?
3: Absolutely. I think we need to keep a laser-like focus on this issue. Um, there's lots of new issues that always come along. the a new flavor of the month, so to speak, but we need to continue to keep a real focus on patient safety to, to optimize ways to prevent harm.
2: Right. Now, we've come to the time um, where I like to say we have to pay, pay the rent. Uh, in other words, it's time for us to take the break. And so I'm going to do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atlee, and my guest is Dr. Tajal. Tejong- gandhi you're listening to family caregivers unite on the voice america variety channel cjmp 90.1 fm community radio and sharing the burden.ca please stay with us we're coming back
4: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your
5: brain firing really fast.
4: All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. On the morning of August 5th, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe. And what keeps her so popular over 50 years later? Goodnight Maryland Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. successful life families today face unique challenges marriage parenting and family forms have changed a lot in the last century
5: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice
1: America. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to DocG at org. Now, back to... To Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tejal Gandhi. Our topic is shining a light on patient safety. Now, Tejal, let's now talk about the challenges to transparency as these affect key stakeholders. So first question, what do you what do you see as the most challenging of the challenges for transparency between clinicians and patients? Thedral?
3: Well, there are numerous barriers to full transparency. I think one of the biggest challenges uh traditionally has been fear, fear of breaking the uh trust of a relationship, fear of malpractice, um, you know, just the feeling bad and feeling guilty about something that may have occurred that wasn't optimal and not wanting to necessarily talk about it. Um, those are all significant barriers. I think there's all the, the fear of malpractice is important, but also just um, fear of the guilt and the blame and any uh, uh, punitive actions that might be placed upon the provider even by their local organization. So that's been the main challenge in healthcare for the last 15 years as we've been thinking about patient safety is we've had a culture of punishment and blame. And so people have been very hesitant to talk about errors even amongst themselves. And then adding into that, being able to talk to patients about it can be incredibly challenging. Um, I think another barrier that's important to talk about is we're not just talking about disclosure to patients about errors. That's clearly one component about transparency between clinicians and patients, but it's also transparency about the care they're receiving, about um, what we call shared decision making, so making sure that decisions are being made in a shared way, and often providers don't have tools at their disposal or haven't actually been trained in how to do this well. So instead of telling patients what to do, it's really discussing all the options and coming to a shared model of what the patient really wants. So It's not about what the doctor wants. It's about what the patient's goals, values, and preferences are. And so another barrier really is um, the lack of effective training in ensuring these conversations happen well.
2: Right. Now, Next question. What do you see as the most challenging of the challenges for transparency among the clinicians themselves? Digital?
3: So among clinicians themselves, I think one big challenge is the data has often not been present. And so even if I wanted to share my performance with my colleague, um, it's often hard to get that data at the level of a provider in a way that the providers think is actually accurate data. So that's one barrier. I think another significant barrier, though, is that, again, in this culture of of guilt or blame, instead of people seeing that as a learning opportunity, they see that as um, uh, a way to look bad or a way to feel embarrassed about the way they are delivering care. And so it's really important to work in an environment where leadership encouraged that kind of sharing, not to point fingers and blame, but to say, hey, let's learn from each other. Um, So if you had that kind of culture and then you had data that was actually meaningful, uh, that would be a real start.
2: Now, let's um, ask you exactly the same question, but addressing it to the question of transparency of healthcare organizations with one another. How open are they in the way they share information? Tejon? So, most of my experience is from the United
3: States, and traditionally in the U.S., it has been very challenging to share information across organizations. And if you think about it, that's a real lost opportunity to prevent future harm. So if you think about a single hospital that maybe had an adverse event occur and they figure out how to prevent it from happening again, and they change their systems to make sure it can't happen again, very often it does not leave the four walls of their organization. And the barriers are as simple as not really having a mechanism to share the learning, but it's more complicated than that. There's issues around peer review protection, So, if you share, then the information may be available to uh, lawyers for a subsequent malpractice case, for example. Um, There's issues of competition. So, do you want to share with your competitors um, an issue that went wrong in your own organization? And there's lots of barriers to sharing due to the, the very competitive marketplace. And so, I think We really need to make a lot of progress in terms of creating the right environment legally, culturally, competitively, so people aren't competing on safety and are feeling more comfortable to share that kind of information so the hospital across the street doesn't have the same event happen.
2: Right. Now, again, same same format for the question, what you see as the most challenging of the challenges – and this time it's for transparency of clinicians and healthcare organizations with the public. What are the most the greatest challenges there that you see Tijil?
3: So I think um, there's a lot of barriers again around data and knowing what data the public really wants to see and being able to capture that data accurately so there's a lot of websites out there that have some forms of data around quality and safety but not at the level of detail that patients often want. You know, you get a hospital who's ranked, say, an A, Uh, on a scoring system, but you really want to know, well, but what about the doctor and the procedure that I'm having at that hospital? And so it's very challenging to get good data at that level and be able to display that to the public in a way the public understands. So I think the data issues are really challenging, but then there's also issues where, again, in competitive marketplaces, hospitals may not be all that excited to have their data shared in a public way. Um, And so you know, the incentives for doing that um, are not uh, incredibly high, whereas clearly for the patient's benefit, having access to that kind of data would be incredibly important.
2: Now, I'm going to ask you a sort of supplementary question relating to this last one, you know, the transparency of clinicians and healthcare organizations with the public. Um, Do you see, first of all, anything in any way related to the notion of trust in among the challenges. Uh, that is to say, is the absence of transparency or the weakness of transparency undermining trust in hospitals, healthcare professionals, and in the system generally? Uh, what do you think?
3: Well, I think trust is a really important uh, uh thing to talk about and you know when we talk about transparency with patients which I know you're asking more broadly but we can start there a lot of studies have shown that trust is actually strengthened or maintained when there has been good disclosure around an event for example because patients lose that trust if they feel that information is being kept from them. So that was a very interesting finding because initially, when we talked about disclosing errors to patients, everyone was worried about what this would mean for the patient doctor relationship, and actually, it turns out that the trust is maintained uh, when that honesty occurs. So I think a similar learning could happen with healthcare systems and hospitals and so on that by being open and transparent, um, they will solidify the trust that the public wants to have with these kinds of organizations. Uh, A great example is uh, Virginia Mason is a hospital in Seattle, and they had a horrible event happen several years ago where a patient died due to an error, and they went public with it. Um, because they wanted other organizations to learn from it. They wanted to show that they were going to learn from it and improve, and um, they decided not to keep it a secret but to really go public. And, you know, the organization is stronger as a result of it, and, uh, you know, the trust of the community is stronger as well because the community felt like they were open and honest about something that had happened.
2: There's often a reference to, uh, and I've seen it in this discussion in various places, to airlines and flying. Uh, Quick personal disclosure, in my late teams, I was trained as an Air Force pilot. And there, the question of pilot error, at least in my mind, now parallels that of clinician error, physician error. But what we would call things that nearly happened and didn't happen, but could be learned from, were near misses. Is there anything relevant in the concept of a near miss? I'm not suggesting for one moment that phrase be used, but just the idea that talking about things that might have gone wrong, but actually didn't because we stepped in at the right moment to stop it going wrong. Do you see any value in that kind of discussion?
3: Absolutely, and when we talk about creating a culture of safety, part of that is really encouraging uh, healthcare workers to report not just the actual errors that reached patients, but the ones that were near misses. We use that term, uh, or some organizations use that term, they use the term close calls as well. But we yes. highly encourage um, uh, practitioners to report those events because we can learn a tremendous amount from those kinds of events and not have to wait for the harm to happen in order to learn. So most uh, uh, experts will say that you want the majority of the cases that get reported to be those near misses so you have a system that's really learning um, from uh is really learning before uh, patients are harmed and trying to prevent those harms from occurring. So it's something that we strongly encourage when we talk about creating a culture of safety.
2: Now, within that culture of safety where we're reporting things that might have gone wrong but didn't or might have caused harm but didn't, um, does that have any sort of legal implication in the sense that is a near miss something that a hospital could be um, have a face a lawsuit over, or would it not? Now, I know I know that's a tricky question, but what's your broad view on that kind of sense of what the implications are legally for near misses?
3: So, you know, I think it's um, so. Again, in the U.S., which I'm most familiar with, laws about this vary state by state. Now, in Massachusetts, where I did most of my uh, patient safety operational work. When when practitioners reported things like near misses, it fell under something called peer review protection, which meant it was protected um, as long as it fell within the hospital's quality structure. So it couldn't necessarily be, you know, subpoenaed for a lawsuit or something like that. And that was really important to the clinicians to, again, create a culture where they felt like they could tell us anything and not have to worry about it potentially getting into, you know, Legal hands, Um, and so I think that's one thing that many states have in place. Um, But the other thing is, in general, I think there's very low risk for these near misses because no harm actually happens. So the chances of um, you know it ended up ending up being relevant to anything that occurs in in, uh, a lawsuit is pretty slim. Um, Now you know the only scenario I can imagine is if you had a bunch of near misses and didn't do anything about it, and then somebody actually did get harmed could. You know the the legal team say, "Hey, you know why did you have all these things prior and you didn't fix it?" But again, right. most hospitals have ways of protecting that information, um, but in my you know in my opinion the the key to that is to hear about these near misses and actually do something about them in order to minimize your risk of any future legal situation.
2: Got it, yeah, great now once again, tyranny of time it's time for the short break. This is Dr. Gordon Asley, my guest is Dr. Tidwell. Gandhi. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio and sharingthemurton.ca Please stay with us. We will be back.
4: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio.
5: VoiceAmerica.com Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Want to help make our world a better place but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety.
5: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc.com. G at Now back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tejal Gandhi. Our topic is shining a light on patient safety. Now, Terrell, let's talk about ways for overcoming the most challenging of the challenges you identified for the stakeholders. So first of all, what ways do you see for overcoming the challenges to transparency between clinicians and patients? What would you say?
3: So I think um, one of the first things that we really need to think about is um, transparency related to, again, as I mentioned, uh, shared decision-making, so ensuring that every patient is given a full description of all the alternatives for tests and treatments, as well as the pros and cons of each, and that sounds very simple, but when you think about issues such as health literacy, when you think about time, when you think about, you know, do the providers have the right tools to provide this information, that can be quite challenging, Um, so I think that shared decision-making piece is a really critical component. Um, And that's not just for before something happens, but really um, during care, giving patients full information about all of the planned tests and treatments, et cetera, thinking about including patients in rounding, for example, in the hospital. Uh, So physicians generally round and often round with other team members like nurses or pharmacists and really having patients participate in those rounds. So it's not a secret what the plan is, but the patient is actually part of creating that plan. Um, Another really interesting new uh, innovation is something called open notes, where patients can view their electronic medical record. Um, most of the studies of this have been in the outpatient setting, but there's people talking about doing pilots in inpatient settings, too. I've actually seen where patients can get their test results in the hospital on their computer, and they sometimes see their results before the physicians see their results. But that kind of transparency, so patients have full access to their clinical information, as opposed to the current model where you have to go request it at medical records and you might get it, you know, several months later, Um, you know, we need to change to that level of transparency. And then, you know, the last piece is really training clinicians around disclosure and apology when errors happen to ensure that when an error happens, the right communications are happening to really um, uh, make sure the patients feel that trust is maintained, as we talked about earlier, that, that things are not being kept from them and that they understand what happened, they understand what the organization is doing to try to prevent future errors, et cetera.
2: Right. Now, what ways do you see for overcoming the challenges, you know, the major challenges, um, for transparency among clinicians themselves? Little.
3: So I talked about one of the biggest barriers there being the culture and a, and having a culture where people feel that, that this kind of sharing is punitive. So really creating a safe, supportive culture for caregivers to be transparent and accountable to each other, knowing that this is for learn, learning and improvement rather than punishment and blame, but then also creating the forums where this can happen, um, you know, If you're practicing primary care, often you're kind of in your own little silo in your office. You may not have opportunities to sit down with your colleagues and really review data and share ideas for improvement. So there need to be those forums created where this kind of learning can occur. Uh, When I was working in a large health system in Boston, we convened all of the bariatric surgeons across the system and said, we're going to try to learn from each other, and we'll provide the data, and we just need you all to come to the table and be willing to talk about how you perform the surgery, what your decisions are when you get to certain types of situations, and so on, so we can learn as a group. And they needed that forum in order to have the ability to share, and it was an incredible amount of learning that went on around that table, um, because it was a safe setting, and there was good data and good analytics to help them really learn from each other. Um, And then another component is really the um, uh, handling of substandard performance and how that's handled by leadership. Um, You know, we need to be transparent about things like performance, and there also need to be consequences when there is substandard performance, and it doesn't necessarily, again, mean punitive consequences, but there needs to be a commitment to training and education and ensuring that people whose performance is substandard are going to have the support to improve and to implement changes to how they practice. So, all of that takes incredible leadership commitment to this idea of transparency and learning.
2: Right. Now, again, same format for the question, but addressing the question to transparency of health or Healthcare organizations, one with another. What are the ways you see for overcoming those challenges?
3: I think the biggest thing I would say there is there need to be opportunities for organizations to work in collaboratives together to share data. And so we have really good examples of some statewide collaboratives, for example, where organizations have decided we are not going to compete on safety. We're going to share our data and learn from each other. And the resources are there to allow these organizations to participate. And we've seen that at state levels, or we've seen an, an incredible group of pediatric hospitals in the U.S. that are doing that. But again, they said we're not competing with each other on safety. We're willing to share all the safety data so that Hospital A can learn from Hospital B, and so on. So, the creation of these kinds of collaboratives, as well as the funding to help support, because it's this is time and effort, and the data collection is not easy, and so on. So, the you know there needs to be um, a funding mechanism, whether it's from the federal government or from payers or from other organizations, to really support um, these kinds of collaborative learning. Uh, groups so that we can improve the transparency across organizations. And then I think the other component is the legal component. So protection, so that if this information is shared outside of organizations, that, you know, it doesn't immediately become fodder for a lawsuit. So there need to be the right protections in place to make sure that organizations feel safe participating in these kinds of collaboratives.
2: Next one, exactly the same format for the question. The, the ways you see for overcoming the, ch- the challenges for transparency of clinicians and healthcare organizations with the public. What do you see as the ways forward um, for dealing with that major challenge? Sergio?
3: So I think that we need to ensure that healthcare organizations publicly display measures that they use for monitoring quality and safety so dashboards and organizational report cards, but they also need to display those measures in ways that the public will understand. And I think the core competencies to do that may be lacking at many organizations. Most organizations are not... Trained in how to display data to the public, so we really—it's—it's it's a whole new field in terms of how to appropriately display quality and safety data to the public. Um, so this is this is something that I think we need to emphasize as we go forward. That we need to train hospitals, healthcare systems, about the kind of data we're talking about um, and how it should be displayed to the public. But then there's a whole lot of measures that are still not being measured. Re- measures that matter to patients is what we call it, and thinking about how do we expand the quality and safety data that we have so that, you know, we're not putting up a bunch of statistics that no one really cares about, but it's really the measures that patients care about. So there's some interesting new areas like patient-reported outcomes, for example, um, where, for example, post-surgery, the traditional outcomes might be infection rates, but, you know, there might be an outcome on... Uh, number of days before the patient could return to work, which uh, for patients is critically important, but it's not something that maybe is getting tracked routinely. And so if I was a patient looking for a knee surgeon, for example, that would be an important metric for me. And if that's the kind of data that we need to start displaying more publicly for patients as well as the more
2: traditional. Now, I just want to go in, into a little bit more detail about the culture and the communications, because it seems to me, and this is this is a question rather than a statement for me, it seems to me that uh, once the idea of the culture of safety um, is really accepted, then it needs to be communicated in ways that are understandable, and let just for the moment focus only on the public, that is to say what our culture actually means for the public and therefore patients who come to our facility for care. Um, How difficult is that communication of the, the, the culture?
3: Well, to be honest, I think most organizations are really focused on ensuring that people within the organization understand the culture. And so I'm not sure there's been as much emphasis on communication to the public about that kind of culture. So I guess what I'm thinking about is if you have a hospital CEO who's really trying to create a culture within an organization where people feel comfortable talking about errors, people feel comfortable sharing data, learning from each other, um, transforming that culture within an organization can often take three, five, seven years. And so much of the focus that I've seen over the last several years is that internal communication to make sure that the clinicians and staff within an organization are starting to really believe in that culture. Um, It's a very interesting question you ask, which is then, how does that translate to the people who are getting their care in the organization? And to me, they will see that culture in their interactions with the clinicians. So I'm not sure if culture needs to be formally communicated versus really in every interaction that the patients are having with the organization, they will experience
2: that culture. And understand that the way in which the culture is being interpreted by the facility, by the staff of the facility, and the way in which it's, I know I'm loading this, but the way in which the hospital actually respects the very notion of the culture of safety um, I, the reason I'm saying that, and this is a difficult one, is that I've in talking to people caring for family members with mental illnesses, serious mental illnesses. They sometimes the, the family caregivers sometimes worry that um, if they're too critical or too probing of the healthcare facility, the care delivered to their family members might suffer, might deteriorate. I'm not sure that that fear is grounded, but there's certainly some evidence that it it causes people to be cautious in what they say. Any comments, Ted, on that particular fear, unfounded though it may be?
3: Well, you know, I'm not sure it's unfounded. I think um, we talk a lot about patient engagement and partnering with patients, and you know, saying patients should feel comfortable asking questions and so on, but I think anecdotally we know that often that can lead to labeling as a difficult patient or a difficult family, and part of that is you know the clinicians haven't necessarily been trained in how best to partner and to not see that as a threat, um, so that it, you know there's a lot that we need to do to improve that dynamic um, you know when we did the 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 roundtable on patient and family engagement, it was about which was the report that I mentioned that the Lucian Leap Institute had put out a couple years ago, Um, there were about 30 experts who participated in that roundtable. These are experts in patient engagement, and almost every one of them had an example of a time when they did not speak up because they were afraid of speaking up because of, to your point, the consequence of what that might mean for their care if they were labeled as difficult or so on. And so I think it's a real issue. And so, you know, this concept of transparency and openness and partnership is going to be really important and patients will feel that. So, I mean, patients, if they're entering an organization where they're involved in rounds, where they have shared decision-making tools and and, and really are able to understand the patient's values and the caregivers are participating in these conversations when appropriate, if There's access to the medical record. Those kinds of things are all going to be really strong signals about the kind of culture that exists in the organization.
2: Right. Now, it's time for the break again. This is Dr. Gordon-Nathalie, and my guest is Dr. Tadral Gandhi. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and SharingTheBurden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back.
5: you with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness georgine summers knows as host of on the edge georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's
1: Voice America TRN. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tejol Gandhi. Our topic is Shining a Light on Patient Safety. Now, let's talk about what more you, uh, Tejal, would like to see done through the National Patient Safety Foundation, the Lucian Leap Institute, and others to improve patient safety. So, first of all, what more would you like to see done through the National Patient Safety Foundation and the Lucian Leap Institute, Tejal?
3: Well, you know, we've talked a lot about culture, and I'll tell you, we've been talking about culture for about 15 years in the patient safety movement and how critical culture really is to advancing in patient safety. So one of our big focus areas, um, it's been a focus all along, but one area that we're really going to try to uh, expand our focus on is how do you really change culture? And we've got some model uh, exemplar organizations out there now, and so I think the the, the real work that we are going to try to do is to take what those exemplars have done and figure out how to spread it, um, because we feel the pace of this cultural change is not as rapid as we would want. So there's going to be a significant focus on practical tools to change culture um, and, you know, and I can talk about some examples of that, but really a culture of respect and tools for creating respect, ways to handle disruptive behavior, people who are not respectful of each other, where traditionally in healthcare <coughs> uh, physicians in general kind of uh, got away with a lot of things, um, and so trying to change that culture as well. Um, and so uh, real... Practical roadmaps for how to change culture will be one significant initiative. Um, One other area I'll mention, which I think will be quite relevant to this (laughs) audience, is most of the work in safety over the past 15 years has focused on hospitals. Most people get their care outside of hospitals. And so we need to do a significant amount of work to really understand what are the safety issues in settings other than hospitals, such as nursing homes, rehabilitation facilities, primary care, specialist care, ambulatory surgery, home care, <clears throat> all of these types of areas. What are the safety issues and what are strategies to, to prevent harm in those settings? Because, as I mentioned, the focus has really been on hospitals, where, and so we need to broaden significantly beyond that.
2: What um, more would you like to see done by others, that is to say, to improve patient safety, given what you've just said about care outside of facilities and hospitals? In other words, who would you like to get involved in this movement, this culture that you're talking about? Well, I think there's a few
3: key parties. Um, You know, one is we need much more research to understand what the challenges are in these settings outside of the hospital. So, research funding generally comes from governmental um, organizations, so having a, an increased priority on funding research in ambulatory settings or settings outside of hospitals will be critical. Uh, second, I think we need the leadership of hospitals, health systems, but also leadership of nursing homes, of dialysis centers, you name it. Leadership is key to improving patient safety, to driving culture change, and so we need to see a commitment from leadership in all of these settings that patient safety is a top priority. And, you know, we're often seeing other competing priorities such as cutting costs, etc., but it really has to be a fundamental component to what leaders do to place the highest value on patient safety and to have this be something that they are talking to their boards about, that they are engaging with their frontline staff about, and and it's a constant drumbeat. So, um, again, I think some hospitals have done this, but it's been much less talked about in uh, some of these other settings as well, not not in all hospitals, in some hospitals. Um, So... The leadership component to this is key. So organizations like ours, we need to do more uh, education and training to leadership, but then there's other organizations as well that have the ear of senior leaders that need to also get involved with kind of, again, having this drumbeat about patient safety.
2: Very good. Now, very last question, a quick one. What's your message for family caregivers who are concerned about the protection of the safety of a loved one in the care of a hospital? What's your message for those family caregivers? Tijil?
3: I think the main message is partnership and participating in care as much as possible, um, participating in rounds, never feeling afraid to ask questions or to speak up, and if feeling and feeling like that is not, um, uh, if the, that the clinicians are not receptive to that, then, it, you know, really thinking about is that the right caregiver for, for that family member because really that partnership is so critical to ensuring the best care.
2: Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end. Time has run out on us for this very, very important episode we've just done. And so, first of all, Tejol, please accept our thanks, mine and on behalf of our listeners, for all that you've been saying, Um, you know, for sharing with us your own experience, your own insights, but also the work, the inside pressures of the work that you're doing. So on behalf of everyone, I wish you all success in the work you're doing and the very best wishes for the future. And what I'm also going to say is you talked about leadership. You personally, your organizations, the foundation and the institute are leaders. And that's important because I think something as vital as trust in the healthcare system, the the, the, the growth of this culture you've been talking about, needs the kind of leadership that you're providing now and that you will go on providing through the work you're doing. Now, I also want to say thank you to our listeners. With Family Caregivers Unite, we're starting a new research project called Qualitative Research. Um, this episode is part of that the idea is to find out what you our listeners think about important topics such as the one we've just been listening to and for you to share with us your experience of healthcare so please email me to hear more or get involved um, the email address is Dr. G D g d-o-c-g at familycaregiversunite or one dot org and also if you'd like to be a guest on my show here's how to connect with me you just email me to that address email address now our next episode will be help and hope for family caregivers caring for family members with FASD that's fetal alcohol spectrum disorders please join us same time same spot on the internet talk to you then